I'm Micah Muscolino, and this is Old China Books. My guest this episode is Lawrence Zhang, who teaches at Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. Lawrence joined me to talk about the ladder of success in Imperial China, Aspects of Social Mobility, 1368-1911, by Ping Ti Ho, or as we refer to him in most of the episode, He Bing Di. As always, you can find references to the books and articles mentioned in the episode in the show notes on your favorite podcast platform. So now, let's get right into the conversation. Thank you for joining us. I am extremely happy to have you as a guest because when it comes to the ladder of success in Imperial China, there are few people around who know the topic better than you do. And so given your expertise and your knowledge of this book, can you give listeners sort of an overview of Hubingdi's main points? Well, uh, first of all, thanks, uh, Micah, for having me. Uh, I think, uh, actually, if anything, uh, my colleague James Lee is probably more qualified than I to talk about this book since he is a Herbing D student and also very much still working on uh, topics of a similar vein, you know, and one could argue even similar approaches, or at least from a very sort of broad uh, perspective. Uh, but, you know, uh, given my own interest, yeah, uh, I... I've certainly read this book a few times. Uh, I think this is something where, that we all read as grad students, right? I mean, I'm pretty sure you read it as a grad student. And I think even to this day, people still at least refer to it uh, during their, their orals uh, and uh, would have to be familiar with the basic argument uh, laid down by Ho because, or her because uh, it's... It's something that other scholars then spend decades responding to. And in many ways, we're still very much responding to it today, uh, given its implications. The Ladder of Success, so this was published in, what, 1962? Yeah. And uh, so this is now 60 years old. It's, it's quite old uh, as a book. Uh, Herbing D looks at the lists of people who earned examination degrees in China, especially the top examination degree, the Jingshu degree, uh, during the Ming and the Qing periods. He tabulated them in pretty painstaking detail, uh, at least given that he was working in the 50s, right? Um, and calculated, you know, using the data that he had available, which was the names and the background of the three generations direct line male ancestor of these people who earned the exam degree, right? So, you know, the dad, the grandfather, and the great-grandfather, all on the male side, um, and uh, looked at the status of those people and made a judgment call, basically, right? Uh, he, he, he had different categories. And uh, the idea was that uh, there was a substantial uh, number of people who earned the highest degree, who came from background, meaning who had dad, grandfather, and great-grandfather who didn't have any kind of official certification. And so the argument goes that uh, China in this period uh, had a quote-unquote high degree of social mobility. Um, and uh, that, that's sort of the main takeaway, I think, that most of us remember from our graduate studies. Now, there are lots of little bits and pieces that are in his book that we have forgotten. And I think the field in general has forgotten and, and, and or 
sort of ignored um, as we talk about uh, the thesis of this book. Uh, so there are lots of these interesting tidbits that uh, maybe we can spend the next hour talking about uh, that qualifies that claim about high degree of social mobility. But the basic argument and the basic argument that people remember that that has the lasting effect for the last 60 years, I think is that. And, and you know, with that, he's basically saying that the examination system uh, the Koji system uh, was a, I don't know, uh, I don't think he quite used those words, but I think people who read his work tended to see the claim as being made about how the exam system was kind of a modern, you know, system. I mean, I was told by multiple people, I think, over time that uh, that's one of the things he wanted to do was to show how China was not the closed off, backwards, cyclical, historical mummy that, that that the West tended to imagine it to be. People read the word meritocracy into his book, even though he didn't actually use the word himself. Uh, and, and it spun a whole industry of uh, scholars who try to add on to his thesis and also to then refute some of the claims that he's making here, right? My understanding of what he was trying to say, just to add another dimension to what you just said in your overview, is that even though there is a relatively well-defined system of social categories in imperial China, there is a considerable degree of movement among those categories. And so it isn't this rigid, ossified system because people are constantly experiencing upward and downward mobility within that set of categories. Right. And, and I think they, the other point that he kept emphasizing is how this is not a blood nobility, right? Uh, so you do not have the luxury of, of using dissent as a way to distinguish yourself. You, you, I mean, you could claim that you know my daddy is so and so, but it doesn't, it doesn't automatically grant you status in a way that, say, Europe did until probably the French Revolution and beyond even. Um, and uh, so you know that that this had to be earned in some fashion or another. The there are lots of again lots of caveats uh, to that, and I think one of the things that scholars have done ever since this book was published was to find these caveats, right? Um, or find these exceptions. And then we discover over time that you know, maybe things are not as, as, uh, as mobile as, as Hope indeed made it out to be. But the, the impact from this book is huge. And people still cite this book. And people still, I, I, especially I think uh, among a lot of scholars who are not China specialists, but who talk about China in their research in whatever fashion, or social scientists who are looking at data sets and, and they, they gravitate towards this and talk about the exam system as this very modern Weberian kind of you know rational system of selecting talent. And uh, we like to think meritocracy is a good thing, or at least that's a prevailing, although that has been changing recently in the last few years. Um, and, uh, and so this is sort of the precursor of that. And actually there was an article published by Deng Siyu, uh, Deng Siyu wrote it. Uh, you guys talked about him last week, uh, last last time. Uh, and uh, on the influence of the Chinese civil service exam on the British civil service exam. Um, and you know he's kind of 
going along the same line, right? Um, I should also add, though, uh, that who one of the things that is interesting about this book is also that his methodology actually is not new. At, at, by the time he wrote this book, uh, you you must have read this article by Edward Cracky or Cracker. I don't know how to say his name. Uh, Family versus merit in civil service examination under the empire, and uh, he this was published in forty seven. And uh, this was an article that used basically the same methodology as Herbing D, but using two lists of Jingshu uh, graduates in the Song Dynasty to make a very similar kind of argument about uh, social mobility and, 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 and examining their social background, basically, of who these people were, you know, um, what what that tells us about their, 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 their socioeconomic background and so on. Of course, this is very imprecise. Uh, you're just going by the status that's attached to, to a few people. But, you know, that's the basic method and the, and the methodology is essentially similar. Uh, Herbing Di just had a lot more data because he was working with the Ming and the Qing instead of two lists from the Song. Another point that I think it's worth mentioning is that there is... I think, so a little bit of sort of context, right, around the time when he was writing this. Uh, meritocracy was a new term. This was a term that was beginning to become popular around the time this book came out. I think it's Michael Young's book, The Rise of the Meritocracy, that really popularized the, the, the book, uh, the, the, the term, rather, uh, of meritocracy. And this was uh, a a book of fiction by a sociologist in, in, published in 1958 about Britain turning into a place that's meritocratic, but that was used in a very negative kind of light. Uh, meritocracy was seen as um, kind of dystopian because it justifies inequality. It, it, it allowed people who got ahead to look down upon those who didn't and those who, whose ability failed them and therefore they couldn't rise in society uh, also uh, felt bad about themselves because they were like, oh, we, we are, we're not as smart, we're not as capable, therefore we deserve our crappier place in life. But when Cracky wrote his article entitled it Family versus Merit, I think it's a very interesting kind of um, juxtaposition that he's putting there. The title suggests that family and merit are separate opposites that if you earn your status via family connections that's automatically not part of what he defined as merit and hoping they didn't really use the word merit that often if i remember correctly in the book i didn't do a word count or anything but uh, i think he very much followed that right so merit became defined through their collective works as individual achievements, uh, specifically measured by examination success, right? It's a very sort of narrowly defined type of merit, right? It's, it's earning the exam degree was merit uh, or as was, a, was a representative of, of merit. So he does say that in post Tang Chinese society, social success depended more on individual merit than on family status, and that high status families had little means of perpetuating their success if their descendants were inept. So you're absolutely right that there's this opposition that he sets up. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and Cracky sort of already set the stage, and I think Herbing D really expanded on that. By doing so, though, uh, it, it sort of shifted the attention of the field, I think, to the institution of the examination of the examinations, right? So, okay, if we define merit as examination success, and we use which degree you earned in the exam system as a proxy for measuring social status, then on the one hand, it's a very convenient thing to do because all of a sudden now you've got all this data that you can mine through historical records in gazetteers, in these lists, in genealogies, where you can sort of rank people based on what degree they had. But I think one of the problems with that uh, is you kind of cast away everything else, right? And I think much of what scholars, scholars have done in the past three, four decades is to dig up again, well, okay, uh, but using exam degree to measure this definition of merit is, is problematic. And why is it problematic? Well, Robert Himes tells you that uh, it's problematic because you, you're not counting all the, you know, the wider relations that you have, right? Uh, someone who earned a Jingsu degree, whose dad, grandfather, and great-grandfather, none of whom earn a degree, well, what if his uncle was a high official, right? That's completely unaccounted for in the data that Herbing D had access to. Uh, or, you know, his mom's side turns out to be important people somewhere, somehow, Right. Um, again, you, you don't have any way of accounting for that in the data set that Herbing D used. And the same thing for uh, these sort of longevity uh, that, that some of these families enjoyed, right? You marry each other, um, so you perpetuate your status by, by keeping yourself in the social milieu of these elites, and eventually you sort of become someone important again uh, you, through success in exams. So, so it's a very fluid kind of thing where the downward mobility that Herping D keeps emphasizing in one of his chapters uh, may not be as strong or as, as able to circulate people as he imagined. Is it fair to say then that in your view, he doesn't sufficiently contextualize the evidence that he has in that he's only looking at degree and the three generations of ancestors on the paternal side, and therefore he doesn't fully appreciate the complexity of the social networks of the elites and the way in which, for example, affinal relationships or other kinds of social relationships could have helped to perpetuate elite status in a way that he doesn't quite recognize. I would venture to guess that Herbing D himself recognized all of these problems and was very well aware of them, probably. Um, he, 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 he was a smart guy, I mean, and I think he is very well aware of the shortcoming of his own data and his approach. Uh, he may not have signposted them as clearly as he probably could have uh, for reasons, who knows? I mean, he, was, he wrote this when he was at UBC, right, I think, um, and uh, was trying to, trying to get out of that provincial backwater into somewhere nicer. So, you know, understandable why he want to do as much as he can with the data he got. Like uh, you just reminded me on his last page, in page 266 at least on my copy, 
there's a line here that I forgot that he wrote, but you know, he said, but our Jingsu data do not deal with the entry into officialdom by purchase. If the latter factor is taken into account, the actual chances of successful upward mobility of the humble and obscure would have been much less. The trends in socioeconomic and general social mobility seem therefore by and large compatible. I mean, that, that last line doesn't mean anything, but uh, the, the line about purchase is very telling, right? I mean, he, he mentions purchase, for example, which is what I work on. Okay. He mentions purchase here and there, right? But mm -hmm. um, he kind of glosses over them and then moves on. He doesn't really deal with it. But he's saying at the end here, he recognizes that if you throw purchase into the mix, then all of a sudden this whole calculation changes. So let's deal with it. This is not supposed to be a podcast for people to plug their books. I'm but, not plugging my book. But, it's not no, out yet. Actually, I want you to, to, to talk about your own research because the connection between your research and the book that we're discussing is so direct that it merits discussion. For that reason, I'll just ask, how is your take different from Hubingdi's? Well, I think I think he is precisely right, uh, and 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 there are multiple points where he talks about purchase here and there in this book, where it's like I said, it's very clear that he's aware of it. He is maybe a bit fuzzy on the details of how purchase worked or when it happened or the scope of it, but you know he has he's he's he knows it's there, right? And he chooses not to deal with it. Because one, he's already dealing with a lot here, and two, um, uh, I think he felt sufficiently uh, safe in having caveated his arguments by saying, "Well, I didn't deal with purchase here, so you know, if you add purchase into this mix, then you know the upward mobility is a lot less." Well, okay, I mean, if you say that, then the question becomes: so, so how how do we sort of understand? Your argument, right? That that is your main argument that that examinations allowed for social mobility, and I think the the thing what, that I mentioned earlier about how the field sort of forgot some of these caveats that he's talked about is that lines like that people just discarded from from their memory and so don't think about. Uh, with purchase, I think he's precisely right in the sense that it it helps arrest this downward mobility, right? Um, and it also uh, gives access uh, to office for people who possess money in a way that Herbert D suggests that was not really possible. The, one of the lines that he repeats quite a few times uh, is that money has to be directly translated into academic degrees in order for his power to be felt. He recognizes, for example, that socioeconomic advantages can help you earn exam degrees. It leads to better, better preparation, you can hire better teachers, you know, you're fed better, you're more likely to perform well on the exam, right? Um, but he believed, and I think this was quite common at his time and even now, uh, that buying offices directly was really a phenomenon that became rampant uh, in the post-typing era. So fairly late in his story, you know, he's talking about Ming Anqing. So he, I think he felt safe enough that you can just sort of ignore that, you know, that's the, that's what happened in the last terrible 50 years of the Qing, right? When, when things were going to, to, to pot and uh, it was no longer sort of under control. So, you know, the other thing is that he, he kept emphasizing uh, early on how 
the power of the degrees was not the not just in the degrees themselves, but in the access it gives you to office, right? So he makes this argument uh, that Shengyuan, the lowest level exam holder, degree holders, were not really part of the upper crust of the elites; that they were just people with a with some certification, because Shengyuan didn't really get you anywhere. It doesn't doesn't didn't give you an office. It's Juren or above that really mattered, right? And so he makes this distinction between people who have higher status and people who have lower status. And yeah, uh, people like Chu Dongzhu and 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 uh, Zhang Zhongli, you know, they they had a little bit of a debate about exactly where that line was. But his point was that it's the access to office that gives these degrees their power, uh, because the, then you become potential officials or you become actual officials, right? So again, purchase sort of messes up that equation, right? Uh, because it it means you don't need to pass any exam to become an official. You, you can just buy a degree and then you can buy an office and you're done. And in fact, uh, as I talk about in my own work, during the Qing anyway, uh, in the Ming is much less, much less developed as a system. But during the Qing, even in the early Qing, uh, during the Kangxi period, you can directly buy jobs uh, up to uh, at least county magistrate. And by Yongzheng, it was already uh, up to um, being a prefect. So these are jobs that were at least equivalent to, if not completely outranking, what you would get at your as your first posting as a Jingshi degree holder. Uh, so that throws the entire calculation of what he claims in that success into a bit of a or it confuses the, the, the narrative, right? Um, good reason he doesn't talk about it is because once you add that into the mix, it's very hard to make an argument about social mobility. And so he very carefully, you know, separated it out and said, I'm not going to deal with that. And in his last page, you know, literally uh, two lines before the last paragraph of the book, he says, I didn't deal with this. So, you know, once you throw that in, things change, but he doesn't know how, and he didn't have data to deal with it. So there was no way to, to really handle that question. Right. So I guess I'm just working on a footnote for his book. I think there's more to it than that. It's more than just a footnote because I was absolutely struck, perhaps because I wasn't looking for it the first time that I read this book, by the number of references to purchase of degrees from the first chapter all the way to the last page. I think one of the reasons why he doesn't make any clear assertions about the significance of purchasing degrees is because he doesn't, as you've already said, have the sources that would enable him to make any kind of quantitative argument about degree purchasing. The other thing is that, as you've also noted, it adds a wrinkle that complicates his argument and doesn't enable him to make the clear statements that he does about the factors that facilitated upward mobility, the factors that were conducive to downward mobility, and then just break it down into two sections of a chapter. If purchase is something that can be drawn upon as a way to either get a degree or to get a post, and there are multiple degrees, right? Some people might- And multiple them, posts. You can, right. you can buy posts directly. Right. And so you can also buy one degree, but then take an exam to get the next degree. That's right. It, pass yeah. one exam and then people did that. buy the next one. It's very complicated. 
And or so, people who, who, who passed the exam and then had to pay money to buy a job because it takes too long to wait for one. Right. And it's faster if you pay your way to get a get an actual post. Yeah. Right, right. And yeah, so, so there are all these sort of wrinkles, yeah. And he's very much committed to the assertion that social status is primarily determined by individual merit. So where does degree purchasing fit into merit. And I was reading his autobiography, or at least the sections in which he talks about or about the ladder of success, hmm. because I wanted to see what word he uses in Chinese, which is the language that he wrote his autobiography in for merit. And he says, Bongming, which Bongming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. is... It's a, it's a it's a capacious word, right? It means like yeah. academic achievements, but it also achievements, means official yeah. achievements. It yeah. means lots of different things. Yeah. And so there's a point that I think is worth considering, and people haven't really delved into this to my knowledge, whether or not merit translates into Chinese and whether or not there's any slippage between the English term and the Chinese terms that could be used to translate merit. I'm sure there is a lot of slippage. I guess the thing is, what is that slippage? And what's its significance for how we understand the way that the examination system works? Hmm. Uh, that, that's an interesting point. I think the translation is, is an issue. Um, uh, first of all, on, on the purchase uh, bit, um, on, in my book, uh, on page 4950, this is uh, in chapter one, he has two tables here, table two and table three where he does list a um, proportion of people who had degrees that were purchased uh, out of these provincial lists of officials. Um, they give, this was at the time when he wrote this book, this was the best estimate he had to how many of these people were using purchase. And the number was something like between a quarter and a half, right? Uh, depending on which period you're talking about. But as you mentioned, you know, there, are, there are multiple pathways for this and you, know, you can buy a degree and then earn an office some other way or earn an exam degree after that. You can earn your exam degree and then buy a job later. Like the, and there's no way to account for that given the data that he had. So you know, he tried, it's, it's not that he didn't try, but didn't have enough info, I think, to really do more with it. Um, and the, the other thing that he didn't have info on was, you know, where was the money coming from, right? Um, uh, clearly, for a lot of these people, they're not also out there, you know, making a big buck on the stock market. Uh, they were spending their time doing regular literati things, uh, which probably means the money came from family. Um, and so that family and merit thing gets even muddier, right, if you throw that in. Um, and we can maybe talk about Elman in a bit, but, uh, you know, and, and the kind of uh, critique that Elman had for, for having these theses. As for the, the translation issue, I think it's an interesting point. I just talked about this book um, with my graduate students here, um, and they're, they're all from mainland China, uh, and uh, asking them about, you know, what word to use for this, or, you know, how, how do we talk about this? It's, it's, it's always a problem because there's no direct equivalent, right? And merit itself is kind of a nebulous term, but I think we all like to believe that we know what it means. Um, in the American context, it's like for people growing, we tend to imagine it as like, you know, university admissions or something like that, right? And, and the sort of 
the constellation of things that go into that mix personal achievement academic achievement you know i don't know winning the the spelling bee competition that kind of thing right um uh but but in in china i think it's much more exam focused and it's it's all about how well you do academically and so they tend to think of it as Taihua, uh, you know, uh, meritocracy, right? That's how they translate it. It, it becomes these four, four character, you know, proverbs, basically. Uh, uh, or, or, um, meritocracy sometimes translated as I think, you know, a society that's governed by, by elites. But it's, it's, again, it's not, it's not directly equivalent. And I think there's that, there's, there's a bit of, trouble translating that. And if you use Gongming, uh, Gongming is, is a manifestation of some kind of achievement. But it's not really merit, is it, um, in our imagination of that word, right? A merit is something you've done or something you've accomplished, you know, and and also, I, I make this argument in, in, in a paper that I have uh, written recently. Um, who's defining that merit, right? Um, I think Herbing D here in his book defines it as examination success. And this ladder of success that he talks about, right? It's, it's, a, it's a great title, by the way, um, which I think was probably a, one, one of the reasons it caught on as a book. It, the, the book had a good title, but it's a singular ladder, right? It's not ladders of success, it's lad, it's, the ladder of success, the ladder of success, right? Um, which already, I think, skews people in a certain way. There's only one ladder, and this is the ladder. And it's success. And, and where is the end point of this ladder, right? Uh, to push this metaphor a little further, you know, the, the ladder ends, it sounds like from his book, when you earn the Jing Shu degree. He's not really concerned about what happens afterwards. He talks about it here and there, but he doesn't really spend much time discussing the afterlife of earning a Jingsu degree. The reality of it was that it's actually really hard to get a job after you earn the Jingsu degree. Uh, even, even if you do earn that degree, it's, it's a hard slog and many people don't make it. Uh, Iona Menchong's book, uh, The Class of 1761, where she examined one particular class of Jingsu degree holders, looked at you know, these couple hundred people and found that most of them don't really go very far in the civil service. Quite a few of them, I don't remember exact percentage now, but like something like 20 to 30% of them don't ever earn an appointment at all. And uh, my colleague, uh, James Lee and Cameron Campbell, they, they're working on this you know, Qing government employee database using Jing Sun Lu data and comparing it to examination lists it's also a kind of a similar mix there's somewhere between a quarter to a third i think who never actually get an appointment in the civil service for whatever reason right these are people who who spent their life you know at an average age of close to 40 earning a jingsu degree and then who don't do anything with it either due to poor health maybe they, maybe they died maybe they were unlucky. Maybe they were wealthy and didn't really feel like going to Yunnan to become a county magistrate. I mean, all really understandable reasons. Um, but Herbing D doesn't talk about that, right? And using that metaphor of the ladder of success, he sort of constrained the discussion to the examination system. 
where merit is defined as passing these exams. But is that it? Uh, if, if the point of it, if the, if the power of these degrees come from holding office, then surely uh, we should spend more time on the office and the life and career of officials rather than just the number of people who pass exams who didn't have dads who were also examination degree holders, right? Um, so that's another part of this where I feel like, you know, it's, it's, it's slippery and it's not very well defined in his book, but the way he framed it then uh, influenced a whole generation of people who, who studied these problems. He definitely doesn't sufficiently acknowledge the reality that a degree, regardless of how high that degree was, did not immediately translate into an official post. He <laughs> makes reference to it, but it's not at the heart of his argument. There's an assumption that he makes that individual merit as expressed through an examination degree conferred elite status. What one can do with it is not something that he is particularly concerned about because he wants to just apply a categorical definition to these people he has in the lists of Jinshir. And I think that might be the reason why he doesn't acknowledge the influence of Shengyuan at the local level, because they could do a lot at but he the couldn't local measure level. Them. Well, it didn't really matter that they were never going to have an official post because yeah. the magistrate couldn't beat them up. They yeah. had all kinds of privileges and yeah. they could lord it over everybody <laughs> who didn't yeah. have Sheng Yuan degrees and they had power, right? And so one thing yeah, that's yeah. interesting is that elite and non-elite is again, situated in a particular setting. And if that context is taken into consideration, then yeah, a Sheng Yuan is kind of elite compared to some guy who just farms or some guy who, I don't know, hauls coal or something. I'm just, you know. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, Michael Songyi has made this point to me many, many mm -hmm. years ago. Uh, basically, if your name shows up in any kind of list anywhere in the Qing, you were probably already in kind of a big of some deal. kind. Yeah. 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 And uh like you said, Sung Yuan can lord it over everybody else, especially in more rural counties, right? Um, mm -hmm. if you're not in like the Jiangnan heartland, uh, where everyone is a Jing Su, then okay, Sung Yuan is nobody. But if you're in some mountain area somewhere, oh yeah, you 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 you're important, right? Um and, and it, to that end, I think Herbing the sort of like what you're saying, he he was measuring what he could measure. Mm -hmm. Right. This is the data that he had. This is what he could work with. And it's a it's a remarkable achievement working with tens of thousands of people on, I would presume, pen and paper. James Lee said he never found um, the notes for this book in Herbie mm -hmm. Lee's papers. So we don't know how he did this. This is pretty um, punch cards. Yeah, this is this is an incredible achievement in terms mm -hmm. of just sheer academic work, right? And he measured what he could, and he set up a structure and a framework that measured that. And by doing so, he influenced the entire field in how they think about that. And so I think the, the next couple of decades, uh, people were arguing back and forth about whether the examination system really promoted social mobility, whether it was really meritocratic. Right. Um, and, and spend all that energy on that. 
um, which was a very fruitful discussion. And, and we know far more about the exam system now than I think we did, you know, when he was writing this book. Right. But my, the analogy I like to make uh, is studying that is kind of like studying who goes in and out of a building by looking only at the front door, the really flashy, shiny front door that's really pretty. But there are all these side doors and purchase is one of them, but purchase is not the only one of them. During the Qing, for example, you have the eight banners, which allows all kinds of people into all kinds of positions without going through the exams, through other means, through the military. That we don't look at any of these other doors when we talk about this, this building, which is the civil service or the government or whatever you want to imagine it to be. And so arguing back and forth about whether this front door is meritocratic or not kind of misses the point. So I wanted to get back to the discussion that you had with the graduate students recently about this book and particularly what you got out of revisiting it this time around. It's interesting. Uh, if you, so, so graduate students in Hong Kong tend to be from mainland China um, and they tend to be very positive uh, in their assessment of Herbin Di's book. Because I think there are so many, because it sounds so familiar, right? It's like the Gaokao. Mm -hmm. That's how that's how we all like to imagine. It. It's like the Gaokao, and the Gaokao is a is seen as a direct descendant of the Koji system, right? Uh, long, grueling exam. It sort of determines the fate for the rest of your life. That kind of deal. Uh, when when in reality it, it isn't. It isn't right. I mean. You can keep taking these exams uh, back in the day. Uh, and uh, so they, they tend to be quite positive. And I think they also like to imagine it to, to be true in the sense that uh, that merit was something you can earn through hard work and study, and that passing these exams would then confer onto you great privilege and prestige. Yeah, uh, whereas, but they are, I think everyone is also very cognizant of the, of the flip side of that, right, which is a sort of argument that, for example, Elman makes, right, uh, it, this is really an exam whose curriculum uh, and design, it really favors those who were already in positions of power and who were socioeconomically privileged. And while it is possible for someone who was from a humble background to earn a degree through the exam, your, your, your odds are really not that great. And this follows in the work of Pierre Bourdieu and others who, who studied similar uh, institutions elsewhere, right? It's, it's, it's clear that, that, that that's true. And we, we, we know that to be true from our own lived experience. But the promise of a system that chooses people based on innate personal ability and accomplishment in a fair and open test is, is, is great. Uh, we, we want to believe that. We want to think that that's possible, right? And, and the exam system did a great job, you know, packaging that PR, right? Uh, they recopy your tests so that, you know, your handwriting can be recognized. You, you were graded anonymously. It's, it's, it, you're searched, you know, to make sure you're not bringing any contraband or stuff that you can cheat with and cheaters are punished, you know, severely, like all those things are, are, are part of the, 
infrastructure to ensure that this narrative of meritocracy worked. But the thing that struck me in rereading this book, which I also felt was extremely familiar, but for a very different reason, I noticed that the textbook account of the examination system is Hubing D's argument with some examples drawn from Miyazaki. That's basically what people say in textbooks for the most part. The thing that I didn't remember was the contrast that he draws between the Ming and the Qing. Mm, During yeah. the Ming, for a variety of different reasons, first, the background of the founder of the Ming. Yeah the need for officials in the first few decades of the Ming, and then also commercial expansion, the expansion of printing, there is a trend towards upward mobility. But then when you get to the Qing, partly because of the background of the Qing imperial household who were Manchus, they were outsiders, and they needed to court the people who were already in power. And also for a variety of other reasons, the general trend was towards restricted upward mobility and if anything, downward mobility. But I, it sounds like you kind of questioned the downward mobility part but the significant point is that the decreased opportunity for upward mobility was at odds with the belief system that a lot of people seem to have had that held the examination system to be this way for people to move up the social ladder. He makes, a, I think, a pretty important point that the Ming and the Qing were different. Part of it was because the Qing were Manchus and they had a very different relationship to the powerful elites in places like Jiangnan than the Ming ruling house did. And that had significant outcomes in terms of social mobility. That's not something that people usually remember about this book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's another big part that people tend to forget about it. It's, it's, it's he make these smaller arguments about mm -hmm. the Ming-Qing period and also the quotas the, that the Qing especially imposed on the exam system and how that shifted, you know, who they are admitting. And, you know, really the exam functioning almost as a kind of affirmative action for the smaller and more marginal provinces by giving them a disproportionate quota compared to population and also economic concentration, right? So artificially limiting the ability of certain areas like the Jianan area mm. from earning all the degrees, which right. they probably could, you know, fill if they wanted to. Um, yeah, uh, that, that's something that, that people, I think, tend to tend to forget about the book. And the, the bits that remain are, like you said, the, the textbook version. And, and also the caveat about purchase and all these other systems, also those are dropped in the, mm -hmm. in the textbook version of the book. One thing about the downward mobility thing that uh, you, you mentioned, uh, yeah, I, I, I would disagree a bit with him because um, of the four lineages that he talked about in the downward mobility chapter, I actually looked at two of them for my own work. And uh, one of the things is that the, he, he is looking at these families that basically all became top dogs in the in the constellation of lineages that existed during the Qing. And uh, two of them, that, the, the ones that I looked at, they both had two generations of grand secretaries. If you're, if you're measuring your downward mobility from, you know, oh, you place members of your family at the very pinnacle of the Qing civil service, 
and you are falling down from that. Well, yeah, I mean, where else are you going to go, right? Um, the other thing is also uh, he he uses examination degrees to measure people's status, right? Because that's the data that he was working with, and that's the that's the main thrust of his entire book. Um, but if you look at the actual jobs that some of these families served in, what you find is that quite a few of them might have had low-level degrees, but decent, you know, mid-ranked jobs in the civil service because they could buy them. Uh, in my data for the Zhang family from Tongcheng, no relations, they had like 20 people from the lineage buying offices in one year. Uh, this is in 1798. So, you know, still very much have enough resources to deploy it for that sort of purpose in a way that is not necessarily easily captured by Herbing these approach. Not to fault him for or anything, but uh, I think the downward mobility part is probably overplayed a little bit or at least needs to be qualified. I wrote in the margin, regression to the mean, odds are after you are at the very top of your game, you're going to do worse. And right. some of his statements about downward mobility from Jinshir are not surprising because that's the highest degree. Yeah. Where else can you go exactly. but down? Yeah, it's definitely a book that has evidence that doesn't lend itself to the simplistic version of of this argument that people tend to take away from a reading of the book. There's a lot more going on here. The thing about the sale of degree, like I said, there are references to it all throughout the book, but the one mm -hmm. data set that he has starts in 1847. So he yep. says, well, definitely by 1850, people are purchasing degrees on a large scale, but I can't really say anything about earlier periods, but probably by the 18th century, they were doing it. People but, don't remember know, the probably by the 18th century that they were doing it in pretty large numbers. The, the funny thing is uh, he actually could. Um, there, there's this, he mentioned this, uh, I can't remember what page is on now. Uh, he mentions uh, the one of the main sources I use for my book, uh, mm. which is this list of people who bought offices in 1798. He looked at it. He, he, I'm not sure which version he had access to. I'm guessing maybe it's the one at Berkeley, which is not complete. Uh, or maybe he saw the one in Taiwan, which is the one I used, mm. which has about 11,000 people on it, people who all bought jobs in that year. And he talked about it very briefly. And basically sort of said, well, most of these people are buying low level jobs and, you know, so whatever. <laughs> Let's move on. And he just sort of drops it and doesn't talk about it again. And when I first found that list completely on my own, and I was like, oh, this is interesting. This is like the smoking gun for me, right? Someone who looks at buying offices. And then I was going through Herbing D's book again. And I was like, wait a second, he's seen this before. How come he didn't say more about it? And he spent like, I think, a page or so on it, a page and a half maybe. Um, and then he, he just sort of leaves it there. And it was it was very surprising to me that that's where he just sort of leaves it. And then, you know, reasserts that money has to be translated into, into offices for his power to be felt, blah, blah, blah. Um, and... But it's right there. I mean, he, he's a data guy. He, he uses all this, all these other lists. Why not do more with this list? Um, I mean, it's good that he didn't because now I have a book. But uh, 
yeah, there, there was actually more out there that, that he could have said about it. It's, One thing that yeah. I was curious about is the role of the emperors in all of this, because he makes sort of offhand reference to the Qing emperors, and those are the emperors I'm most familiar with. And there are clearly decisions being made to mm-hmm. expand the number of degrees conferred, some kind of decision-making process behind the number of degrees sold, although the level at which that decision is made is not entirely clear. I wanted to know more about just the politics of the it's, examination system from it's interesting. Um, oh, sorry. the court down. Yeah, uh, actually, that, that's, uh, that occurred to me too when I was rereading this for, for the podcast, uh, is um, you get very little, if any, sense of policies being formulated in this book. The institution exists. He, he is studying the institution. He's studying the demographics of the institution. He's not studying policy. And he, he doesn't seem very interested in it. Nor is he uh, narrating uh, change over time in that way, right? He, he narrates change over time like, oh, the Ming was more socially mobile than the Qing, like that. But if after you read this book, you're not going to you're not going to be able to tell a story of civil service exam in the Ming and Qing period. I mean, you, you, you can probably do that with Elman's book, you know, but that's 800 pages and came, you know, 40 years later, 30 some, some odd years later. Um, and uh, so he doesn't actually give you a very good sense of how the exam system changed in that period, other than the quota stuff. I think the quota and the, the, the quota and the, the spaces uh, are the, bit that are most related to change over time, right? Uh, where you, you get a sense of, oh, you know, from the Ming to the Qing, this is what changed, you know, and, and the, the government changed their quota and stuff like that. He doesn't really deal with anything else. Elman spends a lot of time talking about changes in policies of which exams go first, what kind of topics are asked, you know, how how procedures change, right? None of that here. It, it's, it's all missing. Um, Maybe he's not interested in them, but uh, it, it leaves a kind of a, again, weird, it reads strangely as a result, right? Uh, it's a history book that doesn't give you a sense of, of time uh, in a way. One thing that I wanted to ask to get back to the idea of the sort of textbook account of the examination system how does the Hubingi version need to be revised? So when we are teaching classes and we give our students a rundown of the examination system and officialdom and how that worked, what do we need to tell them in 2022? Uh, I think the most important thing, in my opinion, uh, not to try to sell my own book, but most important thing is just to uh, make it very clear to them that the exam was not the only way to become an official. I see that every so often. Uh, I think a couple of the textbooks I looked at, uh, sometimes they don't necessarily say that, but by not mentioning any other possibility, it gives you the impression that exam was the only way to become an official, which is the wrong impression to give to your students. And then if you spend like two classes talking about the exam system and you don't talk about any other avenue, well, guess what the student is going to remember, right? They're going to remember, oh yeah, you, you take the exams to become an official. Patently not true. 
Um, so the first thing to do is, I guess, to avoid giving that impression, right? Um, mention these other possibilities and mention the relative proportion of them, like purchase, you know, in the Qing anyway, accounted for at least a quarter, uh, if not half or more by the 19th century of people who served in office at all ranks. That's a lot. Uh, and and that the other thing is also, um, this is not that different from other places around the world. I'm thinking mostly of Europe, I guess, uh, but also South America, I think, was also having these systems of venality, right, where they sold offices. Um, in Ancien Regime France, this was normal, um, the sale of offices. Uh, to become a public official, you pay the government money. Uh, in the British Army, when Wellington fought Napoleon, all the officers bought their commissions. This was not unusual in any way, shape, or form around this time in various parts of the world. Uh, in fact, it would be unusual if China was the lone exception to this and, and only admitted people based on talent or merit or whatever you want to call it. So we need to not give that impression. Uh, the other thing also is that uh, for purchase, for example, uh, there are fundamental differences between the European systems of sale of offices with Chinese ones. Uh, the Chinese one didn't give you property rights to the job. So you don't own the office. You can't sell it to somebody else if you felt like you didn't want to do it anymore. You can be fired uh, if you don't do a good job uh, or if you screw up somewhere big, even if you pay for it. They, they didn't care. Uh, whereas in, in, in the British Army, for example, if you don't feel like being an officer anymore, you sell your commission to someone else and so they can do the job, right? And you can make your money back that way, right? So that's also very different. Um, I, I think there are key differences there, but the most important, I think, is just still just don't give people the impression that exam was the only way. Um, and make sure that we emphasize these other pathways, like the eight banners, the military, uh, the Ming is a little, uh, there's the recommendation system, I think, during the Ming. Um, but maybe you should talk to your colleague, Sarah, uh, about <laughs> about that. Um, but I think it's, uh, it's there, there are these alternatives to straight up taking an exam that, that need to be emphasized so that people don't get the wrong idea that this was the only way, right? Um, and... You see this repeated a lot, I think, in a lot of uh, social science stuff. Uh, they read Herbing D once a long time ago uh, in grad school and have stuck with it as, as the gospel um, and don't really realize that historians have generally moved on from this thesis, I think. Uh, even if you think exam was the most important way, you still understand there are lots of caveats to this idea of the ladder of success. But uh, not everyone got the news. I, I think in recent years, uh, there's been a lot of books published uh, in US, UK, and maybe elsewhere about meritocracy, right? Michael Sandel just wrote this book about mm -hmm. meritocracy, the tyranny of merit or whatever. And, and he's not the only one. There's like at least half a dozen books like this. Um, and it speaks to, I think, for example, American undergraduates, right, who you're teaching. Um, they inherently understand the problems of this narrative of meritocracy versus the reality of it, where I remember listening to one sociologist from Stanford talking about the university admission system, where parents can basically buy merit for their kids to get admitted. 
right? Wealthy parents, you know, send them to a horse riding school or whatever. I mean, that stuff like that. Um, and I think undergrads generally understand that. They, they understand the system has a component where they are evaluated for merit, but they also understand the 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 mitigating factors to that, right? And and how socioeconomic advantages translate into merit in very real and direct ways that are unfair. Uh, and that uh, it goes both ways. And and we're just seeing that in play in 17th, 18th century China. Right, uh, maybe even earlier, but again, the Ming data is is crap for purchase. And uh, uh, but you know, um, I'm sure knowing the right people and having the right friends and the right daddy uh, certainly didn't hurt, even in the Ming. So I think we can just leave off right there because <laughs> the timeliness of this topic is really quite remarkable. It occurred to me that Hubbing D has a 1962 conception of merit. Yeah. And now we need to look at merit in a more critical early 21st century way because we don't think about merit the same way that people thought about merit in post-war America, early 1960s America. On that note, we're going to bring the episode to a close. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and we'll see you next time.